Welcome to Ojai, California. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a townie. I am a townie who loves other people's stories. This is a podcast about other people's stories, because our stories are what connect us. And I sure would like a whole lot more of that right now. I'm not sure what I can do about the state of our world or our union, but I had an idea about what I could do with my 900 square feet of downtown Ojai real estate, aptly named Kim Maxwell Studio. Because for me, it always comes back to stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, whether dramatic or comedic, fictional or autobiographical, whether it's at Juvenile Hall, Cal Lutheran, or my home studio, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. I fell in love. I fell off the wagon. My husband died. I stuck my foot so far in my mouth that I can never go out in public again. These are the kinds of stories that soften us, that slow us down, that remind us to actually listen to each other. They make us better friends and neighbors and citizens. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, being recorded up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. The reward for that terrifying risk? They have been heard. Their words matter. They matter. The other reward is to give the person sitting across from them in the audience permission to do the same. To take that risk. Make that leap. Maybe in my studio. But maybe it's that diploma that it is not too late to go back and get. Maybe it's launching that small business or asking for that raise that is two years overdue. Maybe it's finishing that book or taking that community art class or asking out that cute person at the coffee shop that they've been pretending not to notice every day for two years. Permission. Yes, you should do that thing. It's going to be scary and it might not work out. And you might end up on the rocks. But you are resilient. And regardless of whether it works out or not, by taking that risk, you will be set off on a journey that you entirely deserve to be on. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Connection. Hope. Permission. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the neighborhood. Episode one, this life of ours. The very first story in our very first episode is titled Never Doubt I Love. 
It's written and performed by Richard Rennix. Richard is a silver-haired, Shakespeare-obsessed freak show of an English teacher for whom it is entirely impossible to communicate without gesticulating. I wish he had been my English teacher. Oh, my darling daughter, you came. I really need your help, Sugar Plum. They've got me on a 72-hour hold. Three whole days, I gotta get out of here. They call this a mental health facility. It's a frickin' loony bin. There's a guy here that smokes imaginary cigars, says he's Fidel Castro. And a woman who sucks on a pacifier while she's breastfeeding a cabbage patch doll. And then there's this, there's this other guy that, that eats off of my plate at lunch, and if I say anything, he says, forget about it. Forget about it. I mean, even the doctors are nutcases. You know, my, psychi- my psychiatrist, he's got a lip twitch. That's not right. That's not right. Honey, honey, I realize I'm not totally blameless about what's happened. It's just that a few weeks ago, the Ojai players were scheduled to open their fall season with Hamlet at the Women's Center. But Billy Johnson got really sick. And he was supposed to play Hamlet, but, you know, like I say, he got sick, and the next thing I know, the artistic director is asking me to play the lead role. I mean, I know I'm too old, and he knows I'm too old, but I'm the stage manager, and of course I know all the lines. So all of a sudden, here I am, the Prince of Denmark. Ta-da! And I'm getting to say lines that I've been obsessing about for 50 years, ever since I read the play in high school. Seems, madam. Ha! (laughs) May it is. Or, uh... I say, there will be no more marriages. All but one shall live. The rest shall stay as they are. Or, um, uh, oh, poor Yorick. Where be your jibes now? Your songs, your gambles, your flashes of merriment! That I want to set the table to a roar. So, yeah, there I was playing Hamlet, you know? My dream role! My life was complete. Really? A loving family? Check! A vintage typewriter collection. Check! And now playing Hamlet. Check! It all seems so perfect, really. I mean, until I read the review of my performance in the Ventura County Star. It was written by some guy, Vin Bobbin, who said I was overly emotional and bombastic and that I moved about the stage like a, like a dog in heat. <laughs> really? <laughs> Vin Bobbin. I'm thinking, what the hell kind of a name is that? So I Googled him. Oh, yeah, I Googled the heck out of Vin Bobbin. <laughs> yeah, I learned about his privileged upbringing, his pedigree from NYU and directing small theater companies off-Broadway to even in Williamstown. Ugh, I mean, he was the real deal. 
<laughs> and then to find out he moved to Ojai last year to write his memoir. <laughs> He's 38. He's 38 years old! Oh, damn it. The slings and arrows have outrageous fortune. So anyway, I got this idea about following him around. I familiarized myself with his daily routine. Joe, Joe's quick stop, the post office, the coffee roasting company, Azu. On Tuesday morning, I waited for him across the street from Seafresh. They serve breakfast now. And so I followed him through the arcade, you know, and uh, to Bohemia, and then over to Bart's Books. And he was leisurely browsing the drama section, sipping lavender lemonade, you know, with this air of conceit. And to top it off, he's not even putting books back to where he found them. He just cavalierly piles them up on a table for someone else to reshell. Well, God of mercy! And he says... What? <laughs> You're a fishmonger. <laughs> Excuse me? I wish you were so honest a man. <laughs> oh, wait. You, uh, you're the Hamlet guy. <laughs> or should I say, the guy that crucified Hamlet? And then he turns around and just leaves me standing there. And the next thing I know, Matt... The manager is tapping me on the shoulder, asking me if I'm okay. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But a couple of days later, I find myself... I find myself waiting for Bobbin at Westridge. The new one, Midtown. I'm there at the end of aisle eight where the coffee is, opposite the cat food and the dog food, because he comes down that aisle on Thursdays. So uh, I'm waiting there, admiring the wood floors, thinking, thank God they got rid of the carpet. (laughs) And then I see him filling up his bag with Sumatra dark roast. And then contemplating what kind of gourmet cat food he wants to buy. This is I, Hamlet the Dane! And he takes off running down the aisle, you know. Let Hercules himself do what he may. And then he runs out of the store and I say, The cat will mew and dog will have his day. God, I love those lines. But when I turn around, everybody's all staring at me. Cashiers and customers. So I make a break for the other door and hide behind the dumpster at Bank of America. The coast is clear. At that point, I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I've taken things a little too far. <laughs> Pull myself together, go home and sip some chamomile tea, and realize this whole thing with Bobbin's got to stop. So the next day I head over to Rainbow Bridge to pick up this anti-stress drink that I read about to calm my anxiety. But I'm standing in line, I see him. Bin Bobbin. 
talking to a clerk in the vitamin aisle, pontificating about the bioavailability of ascorbic acid. <laughs> Let the doors be locked. Treachery, seek it out. <laughs> and then I grab a, a baguette out of the bin, you know. Oh, villain, villain, smiling, damned it, villain. And he staggers backward, eyes open, you know, all sweaty. You shall be justly killed. And I start beating him with the baguette. He falls backwards into the homeopathics, you know. Crumbles to the floor. I, I don't really remember a lot after that. People yelling, somebody holding me down, the cops, more yelling, and then I woke up here. My shrink with the lip twitch, he's got me on suicide watch. I was, I was reciting the to be or not to be speech to a group of patients. I thought it'd be comforting. But really, I gotta get out of here. I, I do. I, Oh, my angel, don't cry. You know me. I, I just got swept up in the moment. You know what that language does to me. It's all a misunderstanding. I'm just overreacting. It's, it's only three days. Okay, I know you've got to go. Hug your sister. Kiss your mother. We're just going to have to leave all this behind us. It's going to be okay. And sugar plum... Doubt that the sun doth move. <laughs> doubt truth to be a liar. But never doubt I love. And that was Richard Renix. Richard lives in the middle of an orange grove with his stunningly beautiful Amazonian wife of 46 years. The fifth written and performed by Morgan Flannery. Our beloved Morgan has recently relocated to the other coast. She is a sound engineering, forever learning, personal story writing, independent type of woman who can enjoy a good Oreo milkshake, a long walk in the foothills of Ojai, or the view from her new apartment in New York City. <clears throat> My name is Morgan. I'm 22, and I have nothing. <laughs> Recently, I learned that I blew through all of my college fund on not college, got dumped, got dumped by the only person I've ever loved for a 53-year-old novelist, and was rejected from every single job that I applied to, including the one that I flew across the country to interview for. <laughs> The one that I told everyone I got because I was sure that I had it and was trying to positively manifest that idea so much so that I spent my last bit of money on UPS moving boxes, which I packed all of my belongings into, only to unpack them again when I received an email from Rachel on Christmas. <laughs> That began with, we regret to inform you. So yeah, I have nothing. Except this. 
The fifth. The fifth what, you ask? The fifth date in five days, and five is my lucky number, and I'm wearing V pants, so you better believe there's going to be a sixth. <laughs> I was a little nervous going into this, but right now I'm having an out-of-body experience where I'm watching myself rocking this shit. And he is giving me that look from across the table, indicating that my pants look awesome. <laughs> and I give myself a very quiet high five under the table because we deserve this. <laughs> it has been so long since I've been on a date with someone that I've liked. No, even just met a human being that I've liked. <laughs> The probability of me meeting someone that I'm attracted to and like and who doesn't ask me to give him my mother's phone number instead of mine is shockingly low. 2015 was a rough year. So this is everything. But I'm not even crumbling under the pressure like I thought I would and I'm so proud of myself. He's in the bathroom, so I feel comfortable giving myself another, better, louder high five. We did it! <laughs> Nothing bad ever happens after the fifth date. We've got this in the f***ing bag. He returns to me with a smile and says, I was thinking while I was in the bathroom, I would love to show you my apartment. Yeah! <laughs> there is a God. <laughs> um, yeah, I would, I would lo I'd lo love to um, go to your apartment. <laughs> we exchange some tension-filled eye contact. Okay, but first, he says, just as a perfectly timed platter is brought to our table. Dessert. Okay, so the fifth date is still considered to be in the new, fragile, cute zone of a relationship, which makes the fifth date too early to say, hey, I have irritable bowel syndrome. torn up inside over what to do. But then I remember, there are sacrifices we all must make in the name of love. <laughs> I know that this can only go one of two ways. One, my stomach balloons up like a puffer fish, and everything stays put where it is for about four days. <laughs> or two, it all comes out. <laughs> As I bring a small but still respectably large bite of ice cream slowly into my mouth, I pray. I pray for the pufferfish effect. The ice cream isn't even halfway down my throat, and I already feel my stomach clench up. Oh, God, I have to go home. But I already said I would come over. But I can't. But I must. I'm debating back and forth and back and forth when, 
all of a sudden we're standing in front of his building. It all happened so fast. Leaving now would be weird. <laughs> I looked down at my belly, which is beginning to look a little more round. I rub it. Yes. Yes, that's right. Puff, puff away. I take a deep breath and go in. It's perfect. We're laughing, we're drinking, we're about to... Oh no. My stomach turns and it all hits me. Excuse me for a second. I say and I walk fast, very fast to go to the restroom and scenario number two commences. I am in shock and absolute horror. Oh my God, he's gonna hear me. He's gonna notice that I've been in here for so long. What if he enters the bathroom after me? He'll definitely know. Everybody poops, except for girls. Girl poop is unforgivable. I'm frantically searching for a Febreze can or a Glade scented thing, but I'm out of luck. I find air scented soap. I douse my hands with it and I start flailing them around the <laughs> to distribute the scent. And then I have another good idea. I arch over the sink from the toilet to reach the faucet. Now he'll just think that I'm washing my dainty little hands. <laughs> but then I hear a sound, a jingle, a tug. It can't be. My heart drops into my stomach as I see it all happening in slow motion. I scream, no! <laughs> but before the speed of sound reaches his ear, the door swings open and he gives me a look that says, what the f***? I think quick, and I swing my other leg back towards the door and slam it shut with my foot. <laughs> the shock of it all sends my bowels into shock, and everything stops. I get my shit together, and I... <laughs> and I leap out of the bathroom. He pretends to be on his phone and not hear me run in. Listen, I say. He hangs up the phone. Just let me explain. What you saw in there, well, it was horrible. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to see that. I'm sorry 
that your lock apparently doesn't work. But you need to know something about me. I have irritable bowel syndrome. It is a sickness that affects millions of Americans. It means that some foods turn my stomach into a war zone. And tonight, when you had ice cream delivered to me on a silver platter, what was I supposed to do? I didn't want to ruin the moment by telling you about my bowels. And I just really, really like you. And that's rare for me. And I really hope that you can forget about this terrible moment on an otherwise wonderful night. There's a long pause. And then he takes me by the hand. He draws me in for a hug. He pulls up my chin, looks me deeply in the eyes, and says, Everybody poops. (laughs) And then... And then I I sort of half fart and (laughs) well, they call it a shark. And in a moment, everything is ruined. (laughs) Including my pants. Lee pants! As I make my way home in the oversized pajama pants that he gave me as a parting gift. I text my roommate to tell him everything because I can't look him in the eyes I tell him the story. I probably can't look anyone in the eye ever again. I flushed my only shot at happiness down the toilet. And now I have nothing. When I finally arrive at my apartment, I hear a weird crumpling sound in the darkness. I flip on the lights to find my roommate and my two best friends holding a makeshift banner pie that says, Shit happens. (laughs) (laughs) And I realize that I'm loved and I'm happy. You were listening to Morgan Flannery. Up next, drought. 
written and performed by Lily Brown, a recently married, recently graduated bilingual feminist activist Bennington girl who has her sights set on Hollywood, a rescue puppy, and a sensible commuter car. Dead of summer in Ojai, California, 2015. It's seriously hot. <laughs> How's the, um, you know, glad to hear it. <laughs> it's hot today, isn't it, Carol? Yes, exactly. It's really, really hot. Actually, it's the hottest day this year. The hottest day in five years. There are 14 fires burning in the Tri-County area, and it kind of feels like hell on earth. <laughs> Now, I don't mean to get up in your business, Carol, if you can even call this business. What's left to trim? What's left to prune when the whole garden is dead? Okay, yeah, I really don't care. Thing is, I don't like to have conversations over the fence, Carol, but I have to say that I noticed something yesterday. I noticed something yesterday. You know that there's a drought, don't you, Carol? Good. I'm glad you're aware of why it's so hot today and so hot all the time. It's because there's a big old drought and the ground is so dry right now. The ground is so dry right now. The ground is so dry right now, Carol. I'm sure you've noticed that we're all trying to do our part, Carol. Almost everyone in the neighborhood. I'm sure you noticed my drought-friendly plants. I'm sure you noticed that the fountain is unplugged. And I don't have a pool, but I saw that Carlos emptied out his last week. Now, I know it's hard to keep tabs on what our responsibilities are here, Carol. In this big old drought, you know, the ground is so dry right now. But I noticed something yesterday. I have to say, I admire your new car, Carol. I've been wanting to make the switch to biodiesel for a while, but some of us are poorer than others, Carol. <laughs> anyway, Carol, I noticed yesterday, and the day before yesterday, and come to think of it, kind of seems like every day this week, every day since you got the biodiesel smart car, Carol, your husband has washed your car. I couldn't help but notice the hose running and running, even when he was scrubbing and not rinsing, Carol, I noticed the hose was running. Now, I'm not quick to judge, and I'm sure it was an accident. I'm sure your mindlessness was an accident. <laughs> and not to point fingers, but that is really wasteful, and we all have to do our part, Carol! The ground is so dry right now, and one drop at a time isn't going to fix this shit, but we can do something, you know? I stopped... Buying plastic water bottles, Carol. I haven't taken a shower over five minutes long in a year. There's hell on earth and I feel guilty, Carol. I'm doing my part and I still feel guilty because it's still dry and there you are with your stupid bio smart tiny bitch car. And here I am with this guilt because the plants will still wilt, the animals will still die, the fires will still catch. And I'm sorry, he seems about as useless as one drop of rain, as useless as one eco-friendly cycle on my washing machine. I'm sorry, one drop. I'm sorry, one drop. I'm sorry, one drop in the bucket, now I just have a bucket of water, and where can I dump it that will make any difference since there's so much dry? I'm doing my part. What about your part? Who the f*** is making up for your shitty part, Carol? What am I supposed to do, Carol, when there are people like you stealing the water I've been 
compensating and pouring it over your greedy body as a bath when there are thirsty mouths pointed up towards the sky. You deserve a fucking bath, Carol. No matter what I do, there's always another waster, another drought enabler. But I know that I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility, Carol. We have to do something to do something. Is there something else I can do to quench the ground that is so dry right now? If I could snow, Carol, I would. <laughs> if I could cut open my veins and make a river, Carol, I would. But I can't. And I'm not sure what good it would do anyway. Yes, Carol, yesterday we did have a barbecue. And no, you weren't invited because we don't associate with drought perpetuators. <laughs> yes, there was beef at the barbecue, Carol. What kind of barbecue doesn't have beef? Yes, we had almond milk. I'm lactose intolerant, Carol. Where did you read that? Oh. How many gallons of water per cow per year? How many gallons per almond? Oh my god. <laughs> Carol? But I, but I, I turned off the fountain. I, I put drops in the bucket, Carol. And, and I know that one drop at a time isn't going to fix this shit, but I really thought I was making a difference, but, but I'm not, am I, Carol? I'm sorry. One drop. I'm sorry, one drop. I'm sorry, one drop. I'm sorry, one drop. I'm sorry, one drop. Tomorrow and tomorrow will be dry and dry. And what is my responsibility, Carol? I can keep doing these little things. We can keep doing these little things. But when will the change come? What else can we actually really do? Now feels like all for nothing, Carol. I noticed something. That was Lily Brown. Born at the Ojai Hospital, Lily is the ultimate hometown girl, co-producer of the Townies podcast, and the very best, most amazing daughter that this mommy could hope for. Where are you from? Who are the people who made you who you are, for worse or for better? Where'd you get your start? You broke your heart, you saved your skin, go out on a limb. Where'd you go off track? Who pulled you back? What made you doubt? Who straightened you out? What's your story? Letter. Written and performed by Saul Gordillo II, a Peruvian-descended, hot-headed, highly articulate pioneer for human rights and anti-bullshittery everywhere. Saul has been in my class since he was a surly-ass 12-year-old boy. He has been fearlessly flinging his poetry and beats across the country ever since. Let me tell you something about your people, boy. See us white people are becoming a minority and we won't let that happen. Your people have babies at such a higher rate, it's unfair. (laughs) My bloodline comes directly from the Mayflower. I know what I'm talking about. We would go to war 
to protect the European standard of living. Oh, you want to go there? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Your f***ing people have been doing that to each other since the beginning of history. I don't know why I didn't put my hands around his throat and squeeze. I don't know why I didn't say more. I felt like a coward. If it was, it was as if every racist, ignorant bigot was embodied in one person. I'm a hypocrite. You may hear people say that I've always been a peaceful man. I stood on a stage at, the, at 17 years of age on Martin Luther King Day and spoke about injustice and how we should all love one another or some bullshit like that. I meant it, but I don't know sometimes. I don't know if turning the other cheek while our people have to face such injustice is rational. This man was everything I hated. Everything that wanted to kill me. This man might as well have called me a spick and spit on me. I might as well have kicked him in the f***ing face. When I was a kid, my parents had the three strike rule. If a kid were to bother me at school, I would have to walk away the first time. If there were to be a second incident, I would have to tell the teacher or someone in authority. If this did not stop the kid from bothering me, I had the permission to fight him but face the disciplinary consequences later. I will always tell people to love one another because I mean it. I think human life should be above property and everything else. But it is a person's job to decide when the third strike is. My life has been a series of second strikes. I don't know if there's going to be a third strike, but if there are, there is, there are things I need to do. Whatever that may be, I didn't put my hands on the man because it wasn't the right thing to do. But I know at the moment, there was nothing I wanted more. He was scared of every oppressed person becoming mentally free and bringing change into the world. Right now, I want you to know that this world was made for you. And it's yours, but you have to love it. You have to love your family. You have to be kind to animals. and Well, you can figure out the rest. Just please understand if I'm distant. If I'm angry. If I'm too preoccupied in the movement to be the kind of person you need, I just, I just can't handle it. Another day. Another shooting. Another bombing. Another raping. Another robbery. Another lie. Another fucking war. And I can't handle it. I have to choose a side. I wish awareness was like a pair of glasses you could take off, but it isn't. And, and I chose the, the side of the oppressed, the needy. And though it eats away at me, I know there's no one else I'd rather be. Sorry, I get carried away. I don't sleep well. You're not born yet, no art, nor are you close to being conceived, if ever. But in case I ever have a son or a daughter, I have to let you know who I am. I was raised in a Christian household. My mother's devoutness and prayer changed my father. He was a good man. She made him a great man. My beliefs tend to bend towards Islam. I'm not sure if I can call myself a Muslim, but that's another letter for another time. <laughs> I like dogs and cats. I love the beach and I love boats. I love music, preferably hip hop. 
and every other kind of art. I love my family. I enjoy movies. One of my favorites is Shappy. It's about a robot who has feelings. <laughs> it made me tear up. I remember my first girlfriend broke up with me because I was ugly. <laughs> and I remember once I snuck out and got cactus in my ass. <laughs> I remember ditching summer school and bringing all my classmates donuts. Have experiences of your own. And no matter what people tell you, you are descendants, descendant, descendants from kings and queens, warriors and scientists. You becoming something that matters is how you become all the above. Love, Saul. And that was Saul Gordillo II. Next up, Man Lessons. Written and performed by Doug Green, a full-on genius, non-profit consulting guru, social justice icon by day, and monster storyteller by night. When it comes to the art and science of being a man, my dad is a professor emeritus from the old school. (laughs) He wears dark blue suits white shirts and skinny ties with tie tacks. <laughs> speak up. Speak well. Speak English, please. Finish your sentence. Finish your chores. Finish your milk. Don't cry. Dry it up, kid, or I'll give you something to cry about. Among my dad's myriad man lessons, there are three big ones. Number one, men are clean. Boys may be dirty, but men are clean. (laughs) Showering once a week is not too much, even in Arkansas. (laughs) Number two, men love adventure. They skin their own squirrels, they go frog gigging, and they wade into the river in big rubber pants to fish. (laughs) Number three, men love Marilyn. They are prone to whistle at her and say inappropriate things. They can't help themselves. Men love Marilyn. I'm seven, and some of the most important man lessons happen in my parents' bathroom where my big brother Hal and I shower on Sundays. Lesson number one, men are clean. In the echoey shower, my brother yells through the glass door, Daddy, pass us a wash rag! The outline of my dad's form appears on the other side of the foggy glass, Excuse me? We need a wash rag, Daddy. A what? Wash rag. I'm not sure what you mean. And they continue this call and response. (laughs) Wash rag, what? Wash rag, what? (laughs) Until I take the initiative and say, He needs the washcloth, Daddy. I resist the urge to add, in the worst way. (laughs) But I think it. Hal is one dirty boy. He gets his clothes so filthy they stand up by themselves. And his mind is dirty too. While the rest of us are lined up in our Sunday best to hunt eggs on Easter, Hal likes to hang back and watch the girls race across the grass with their pastel dresses and petticoats flying and whistle with his thumb and fingers stuck in his mouth. 
which I'd do for you, but I can't. <laughs> Hal is a rascal. Thank you, Douglas, Dad says, and a clean white washcloth sails over the glass door and lands between us in the shower. Hal shoots me a dirty look and lathers up with the bar of Camay from the holder on the wall. <laughs> Imagine Hal using Camay, the beauty bar. <laughs> the irony isn't lost on me. <laughs> I wait until he places the bar in the holder before I reach out and scrape a smear of pink soap with my fingertips and retreat to the corner of the shower. I work up a lather between my palms and begin making tiny circles across my face. <laughs> The way I've seen the Camay lady do it on TV, Hal's mood darkens. <laughs> Daddy, he's doing the Camay lady again! <laughs> What's that? I hear my dad say as I continue making careful little circles <laughs> on my face. I can't open my eyes because I'll get soap in them, but I can feel my brother's anger building. He and dad continue to shout back and forth across the glass door. He's doing the Camay lady! What? He's doing the Camay lady! <laughs> I'm not even sure my dad knows who the Camay lady is. <laughs> After our shower, we take shaving lessons. Dad has a Gillette slim, slim handle razor that opens on the top. He fills the sink with hot water and then he opens the razor by twisting the handle and carefully drops the shiny new blade into place. And then he warns us, never, ever, ever use daddy's razor or his razor blades. And we nod seriously. And he makes his soapy lather with a brush and a special mug. Hal and I sit cross-legged on either side of the sink and beg Dad to let us shave with him. And after he's all lathered up, he wipes the extra from the mug, first on Hal's cheeks and then on mine. And we use this special training razor. It's actually a piece of cardboard that my dad cut into the shape of a, of a razor. <laughs> we scrape the foam from our cheeks. And Hal and I take turns cleaning the last of the shave cream from our faces and look carefully for any missed spots. <laughs> I do not do the Camay lady. Instead, I pat my cheeks with a tiny amount of aftershave and leave my, take my leave with a, Later, boys! <laughs> it's what my dad and I say, reflecting our friendly yet independent spirit. <laughs> Lesson number two, men love adventure. Sometimes late on Sunday nights in the summer, my dad will take us down to the pool down the street. He has keys to the padlock on the gate and to the men's locker room. Sometimes we ride our bikes, but mostly we walk. The pool is behind this ancient wooden clubhouse at the end of Pinewood Drive. Dad leads us through the dark to a light pole to a light pole at the edge of the pool deck, and I clutch one of his hands and wait while he reaches for the switch. And then the light clicks on, and the pool appears beside us. I feel the rush of doing something that is in clear violation of the rules that are posted in red block letters on a rusting metal sign. No running, no diving, pool closes at 7 p.m. <laughs> Last one is, it's rotten egg, my brother shouts, and we run and leap headlong into the water and tease my dad as he places our towels in a chair and says, okay, you got me. I might be a rotten egg, but I bet I can do the best cannonball. And the competition is on with cannonballs and jackknives and then Marco Polo and holding your breath underwater. 
My dad and I, Hal, like to race from one end of the pool to the next. So while they're occupied with that, I practice my synchronized swimming moves <laughs> and make sure to point my toes and give little flourishes with my hands on each stroke. And sometimes I get caught up in the moment and find my brother and dad staring, slightly curious, slightly horrified. <laughs> But they say nothing. No one wants to risk ruining the adventure. The locker room is definitely a man place. It smells of sweat, and there's a calendar on the wall with pinup girls for every month. It's a Western theme, and all the girls are photographed in short shorts. Each month's girl has something unique on top. July has on a red, white, and blue bandana that covers most of her neck, and August has on nothing. <laughs> August has on nothing but a straw cowboy hat. It looks like it's seen better days. Hal stands on the rickety folding chair and flips through the months while I stand next to my dad as he changes into his street clothes in front of his locker. Taped inside the locker door is a photograph of the most famous pinup girl of all. Lesson number three, men love Marilyn. The picture shows Marilyn waving to a crowd of GIs from one of those gangways where they, they wheel it up to the plane. Her gaze is soft and provocative as she peers over the collar of her coat. Wow, Hal exclaims, what a fox. <laughs> I correct him. Actually, I think that's mink. <laughs> Dad looks first at my brother and then at me and then closes the door. <laughs> Hal begs him to take us back to the pool for one last dip, but he says, later boys, and we head home. That night I go to my parents' bathroom and pull the collar of my flannel PJs up to my neck and smile my most kishnish smile into the mirror above the sink. And then I close my eyes and imagine my adoring fans clamoring for my attention. <laughs> My dad has told the story of that picture enough times for me to know that the GIs in the photos are shouting greetings and come-ons at me, uh, her. <laughs> Marry me, be my baby. Marilyn, can we get a picture with you? Douglas, what are you up to? It's my dad standing at the door of the bathroom and watching me simper subjectively in front of the mirror. <laughs> His expression is one I've come to call concerned, yet seeking to understand. <clears throat> that is the beginning of my challenges with the man lessons. We have a back patio that's green concrete with a massive red barbecue that makes a decent stage for my one-boy shows. These are usually some combination of show tunes, Celebrity impersonations and interpretive dance. <laughs> One night when my folks were watching TV in the den, I staged this show from the neighborhood kids in a yellow sundress inspired by one I've seen Marilyn photographed in. I make it out in, entirely out of yellow paper towels and recycled rubber bands from the newspaper. <laughs> Rusty Wilson says it looks more like a one-piece lady's bathing suit, but he is so hateful, and frankly, I am not about to take... <laughs> fashion lessons from someone named Rusty. 
We have just elected Dwight Dunwoody, the cute boy who lives two houses away, president of the neighborhood. And I stand up on the barbecue and sing, Happy birthday, Mr. President. In as breathless a Maryland voice as I can muster at seven, standing there in my provocative paper towel sundress. The neighbor kids sit on park um, picnic benches and cross-legged on the green patio, slack-jawed and slightly aghast. My curtain call call draws more than a few catcalls and shrill whistles and nearly incites a standing ovation. And then my mother appears at the slider from the den and looks out on the scene as if viewing a fresh mass murder. (laughs) Douglas Howard Green, you come in this house and put on some pants right now. Your father will tan your hide. And even as I realize this will be my last the last time I appear publicly as Marilyn. I smile inwardly, remembering Dwight Dunwoody holding his hands up to his face during my performance and snapping pretend photos at me from rakish angles. Mom, bless her heart, never mentions it again. Sunday, August 25th, 1962. One of the hottest days of that summer. My dad sits in the den in front of the TV and rubs his eyes red with his fists. It always makes my stomach hurt to see my daddy look so sad. I know everyone gets sad, but when it's my dad, it's really hard. Marilyn is dead. My dad blows his nose and says, Did I ever tell you about the time that me and your Uncle Bubba saw Marilyn at the airport in Tokyo? We were on there on R&R, standing with a bunch of other GIs on the tarmac. Marilyn stepped off the plane and walked within a few feet of us. We caught her eye and shouted, Hey, Marilyn, how about a picture? And she just smiled and waved and said, Later, boys, later. (laughs) My head is crowded with thoughts and questions. Was it suicide or an accident? Where were her parents? Is my Marilyn impersonation getting any better? (laughs) Does dry it up apply in this situation? As we silently watch the slideshows and film clips of Marilyn's career on the TV, I slide my hand inside his and gives it a squeeze, and I whisper so that only he can hear. I want to be loved by you, just you and nobody else but you. You were listening to Doug Green. Doug and his spectacular and extensive collection of bow ties are the most sought-after resources in all of Ventura County. This Life of Mine, written and performed by Kathleen Helwitz. Miss Kathleen has been officially dubbed front row lady for her delightful propensity to sit front row center at any arts-related anything in the realm of this tiny town. Aside from having been everywhere and seen everything... Kathleen is the kind of sassy, well-read, well-traveled, bra-burning grandma we should all aspire to be. 
I have something in my pocket. It belongs across my face. I keep it very close at hand in the most convenient place. I know you'll never guess it if you guess a long, long while. So I'll take it out and put it on its great big brownie smile. <laughs> Chapter one, the ice queen. <laughs> we called my mother the ice queen. When we were old enough to be curious about how we got here, my sister and I asked her, and she took a book off the shelf called Being Born and showed us a picture at the front of the book, a solid black page with a white dot in the middle. Under the picture it read, This is how we all began. <laughs> wow. Our interest was sure peaked. So we asked, just how did we get from that dot to us? She closed the book and said, go ask your father. Thus, our sex education was taken over by an Irish alcoholic who fancied himself quite a ladies' man, needed to tell his stories and his conquest stories all the time, and wanted his daughters to be virgins when they were married. Which is why my sex education became a learning by doing experience. <laughs> Chapter two, PCH. I adore PCH. I love the way it twists and turns and how it leads to places I've loved all my life how it doesn't get to be changed often since there's no room to change it. <laughs> they made a cut in it late in the 1800s that's pretty much stayed. For me, parts of it mean where I got married, where my mother lived, where my father died, where my uncles surfed, where I found my favorite stone shaped like an egg and then a big wave came and swept it away, <laughs> where I saw dolphins, where I went to dances, where my gram and I picnicked and ate fries and burgers and Cokes before the time of plant-based diets, <laughs> where I napped during the polio epidemic of my youth, where my uncles and my dad caught lobsters and abalone and I searched for pearls in the ab guts, where I walked on the beach and found real moonstones, where I held an octopus and a starfish, cooked corn and roasted marshmallows. I love PCH. Chapter three, Ahmed loved to dance. Oh, how Ahmed loved to dance, especially to Latin music. How strong his arms were and what fun it was. Along with dancing in the living room, there were his stories of dancing at the night spots in Cairo and Alexandria with King Farouk at ringside, the lovely night air off the Nile, the sweet smells of the flowers from the street vendors, the magic of it all in his words that he used to tell of his memoirs. And then it was just the two of us in those romantic locations, for real, and it was more magical than what I'd imagined it would be. I'm so lucky now to have those first-hand memories of my own they make for very sweet dreams now that I am older than he was. You were right, Ahmed. God does provide. Epilogue.
Oh, this life of mine, a solid black page with a white dot in the middle. <laughs> PCH, Ahmed dancing in the night air of the Nile. Chapters and chapters of romance and places and people, all peppered with fear, anxiety, and shame from my childhood. So what did I expect when I came here? Love? Acceptance? Encouragement to be me, maybe. Well, what really happened? I was bleeding at birth. Maybe I should have been more, paid more attention at that point. Silly me. I pushed through that non-welcome party and moved into my family. When I heard or was told things I knew were not true or right, I did what I knew was. If this meant getting whipped, so be it. I learned. I taught in Watts in the 60s. I learned. By spending a number of years in therapy, I learned that being raised by an alcoholic father and a fear-based mother with a borderline personality disorder, I might want to make some changes. (laughs) In order to go forward with any degree of success or happiness. I was raped and bore a child. I learned to say no. My genetic legacy of hypertension danced with my smoking and drinking and continuing to eat as if it were still the 50s until hep C arrived at my doorstep. So I learned diet, exercise, supplements, acupuncture, rest, meditation. My mother died and I was robbed of my inheritance. I learned to make money my business. Almost 10 years later, I was diagnosed with my third fatal fatal illness, Parkinson's. And I declared this new lesson had met its match and I learned more about diet and new exercises. Now that I am officially facing death, I feel better than ever. (laughs) What am I gonna get? A fourth fatal illness? (laughs) Come on. There is a flow to my life that couldn't have been without all the experiences, illnesses of my childhood filled with fear, anxiety, and shame. I treasure my chapters. I treasure standing up here all alone in front of you, reading them aloud. There is something so perfect about this exchange. I have a sense of strength I've never known. So I'll be here again, and again. Life is sweet. I have something in my pocket. It belongs across my face. I keep it very close at hand in the most convenient place. I know you'll never guess it if you guess a long, long while. So I'll take it out and put it on. It's a great big brownie smile. (laughs) And that was Kathleen Helwitz. Thank you, Miss Kathleen. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of freshly minted stories. 
I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world, to laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Okay. Here Someone we like Harvey Feierstein. <laughs> Harvey Feierstein. I can't what? do that. I strip my vocal cords. What do you want to call you, Harvey Feierstein? <laughs> He's amazing, and he makes great ties. That's right. <laughs> All right, let me mark that. Okay.